Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing UK research policy and priorities for UKRI. With me to explore the issues is Stephanie Smith, Head of Policy for Research and International at the Russell Group. Uh, Stephanie Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So the UK government has promised a very large increase in the budget for R&D over the coming years, rising to £22 billion by 2025. What are the key priorities in deciding how that funding might be allocated? Well, we know that government spending on R&D was around £12.6 billion in 2018. So an increase to £22 billion is nearly double that. Um, we also know that in 2018, from the government's own figures, that the Research Council's funded grants at about 74% of full economic costs, which means that if you undertook a project with Research Council funding in 2018, and that research cost you, say, £1,000 to do, you would have been given only 750 to do the thing. So that means every time you pick up a research council grant, your university is effectively having to backfill a gap of around 26% from other income sources. So what does that funding gap look like at national level? Well, in 2018, it meant that UK universities ended up undertaking research at a loss of about £4.5 billion. So if you ask me what the first priority of government should be, I'd say research needs to wash its own face. We can't have a situation where the success of the government's R&D strategy for economic growth is contingent on the ability of UK universities to subsidize that activity via international student fees. COVID has shown us that isn't a sustainable model going forward. Um, the second thing is that there needs to be a clear path to that 22 billion. So pre-COVID, economic arguments that you've heard previously on your program, I think, in favour of R&D are pretty strong. We know we have a productivity problem in the UK and that increasing the diffusion and uptake of innovation is really the best way we have of boosting that productivity and so achieving growth. So as we enter into a post-COVID period, that growth is going to be needed more than ever. And we have been here before. So we know that Gordon Brown's government had a 10-year plan for boosting R&D investment in order to achieve growth back in 2004. But that plan failed because when the recession hit, they bottled it and became shy of investing in R&D. But if R&D is your way to up productivity and in turn growth, this is precisely the time when we should be doubling down on research investment. So we really need to learn the mistakes of the past here so we aren't doomed to repeat them. So that's really interesting, and, and I'm old enough to remember some of those mistakes myself. One of the things that uh, the government is talking about using some of that additional funding for is on uh, what they're calling the levelling up agenda, focusing on different regions and nations of the UK. And that has also been included in the government's recent R&D roadmap, and the roadmap is going to contribute to this levelling up agenda. Uh, which implies there are some regionally targeted R&D expenditure. How should that R&D funding on a regional basis be allocated, do you think? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it's not for us to decide how much should be invested in levelling up. What we have spoken about the Russell Group in our spending review submission is that we need to empower those local actors to decide how they go about that levelling up work. 
So we know, for example, that every local area faces a different set of challenges. Um, and so the remedy will be different in each case. And that's why we've recommended a significant proportion of leveling up investment be targeted towards HIFE, for example. So for those of you who don't know, HIFE is a programme for funding innovation that allows universities to create their own strategies for um, addressing the innovation challenges in their local ecosystems. So some regions might need to address issues of low absorptive capacity, others might want seed funding for early stage innovations or patenting or attracting serial entrepreneurs into their local areas in order to run spin outs that they're creating. So where the challenges are different, the funding that flows regionally needs to be flexible enough that local actors can design those bespoke solutions. The other thing I'd say is that if we're going to demonstrate value for money for this investment, we also need to be investing in programs for leveling up which have a proven track record of success. So again, in the case of HIFE, we know that for every pound we invest in HIFE, we get a return of about £9.70 to the economy and society. So it's not always about what's shiny and new, it's also about funding what works and what has proven to work in boosting regional economies. Um, so the other program I point to um, is around knowledge transfer partnerships. They're a great example of a long-term um, program that's been in place for, I think, 40 years now, which is ancient in policy terms. Um, but these are schemes that place highly trained graduates into a business in order to solve a specific problem that business is struggling with. So these have been hugely successful as a way of injecting innovation directly into a business, especially SMEs, and encouraging them to engage in further innovation, which is what we know drives productivity. So at the University of Liverpool, for example, they did some research and found that the businesses who have taken on one of their KTP associates have not only increased their profits, I think over 75% of those businesses went on to plan further R&D collaborations with the university. So we know that they're a great way of boosting business engagement, which is essential if we're going to get that pull of innovation into the economy. So you've talked about some of the specific schemes and funding that work on a regional basis. Do you think that the additional funding that might go for regions should be focused more on the development side of R&D, more on the research side of R&D, or a little bit of both? Oh, that's a good question. I think all universities want to see their research have a positive impact on both their local communities and the wider world. So our university strategies for how they support that are very much anchored within their regions and whether they'll be um, looking more at research, more at innovation, be very much tailored to the needs of their locality. And again, there's that sort of um, that false narrative that there's somehow a single line that runs from research to innovation. We have a discovery and then some magic happens and then there's a product or service that comes out. It's a far more complicated process than that so again we have to um we have to have some flexibility in the system there to allow a university to think very carefully about what it needs regionally so if i think of the example of newcastle they've taken high funding and they've used other funding as well secure so funding which is traditionally used just for research and they've used that to address the issue of their lacking a local innovation ecosystem so their strategy has been around how do you build that ecosystem from the ground up? So where before you had a derelict site in the middle of Newcastle, where you had Newquay Brown Ale or the factory, um, what you have now is the Helix, 
which is this purpose-built community which has been created to house a mixture of startups with access to high-tech lab space, researchers, working alongside business and entrepreneurs. And all that research and commercial development is around the themes of healthy aging, urban planning, data, sitting alongside affordable housing as well. So I'd say it's a lot more complicated a picture there because you have universities playing an R&D role, but you also have them as one of the sort of last big civil actors out there in the regions who are working as conveners to bring together the business, yes, but also the local councils, the NHS, the LEPs, to put together fairly unique projects that straddle the R and the D at the same time. Which suggests to me that large research universities like the Russell Group, uh, but not exclusively, of course, really have a role to link in with their local and regional civil society organisations, local authorities and so on. How does that work? Do you think that there are good models for linking universities to local authorities, for instance? I think where partners have been given the space to fund those partnerships, then we're able to invest in them. So it, it really is about funding from the top, being flexible enough that your university can approach your LEP with an idea or vice versa. And you can go into collaboration to do something together. And that's not necessarily a large amount of funding that's needed, but, um, but it needs to be flexible. If you've got these very, very top-down programs that talk about a very specific area that you have to work in, that can be detrimental when actually the issues that you have in your particular local area aren't those. And what you need is different solution. Okay. So I'm going to take you away from the regional area, which I, I feel we could actually talk about for a long time, because I want to also tap your expertise on uh, international research and particularly the consequences of Brexit. Obviously, most people listening will be aware that UK universities uh, have a desire to become full associate members of Horizon Europe, but that's all tied up with the overall discussions on a post-Brexit tra- trade deal even if the UK does become an associate member, there there will almost certainly be some kind of gap between the end of 2020 and the start of when our association happens. What can the government do? What can UKRI do to minimise any kind of disruption from that kind of gap? So it depends what sort of gap we're talking about here. So there are probably two scenarios in which we could see a gap. So in the first scenario, the UK does associate, but there's a delay in us joining Horizon. So in that gap, which would possibly last a couple of months, uh, the UK would be classed as a third country. So we wouldn't have access to what are called the mono-beneficiary parts of Horizon Europe, which are the MSC Actions and the ERC. So there are probably two things we'd want to see government do in this scenario. The first is that we want funding for third country access to be automatically guaranteed. Uh, Now, the government's already said in its roadmap that there would be funding to support the UK's participation in this scenario, but we're looking for a firmer commitment that funding would be automatically guaranteed for successful projects so we can avoid a situation of what's called double jeopardy. Now, Switzerland, for example, has already taken steps to reassure its international partners that they would automatically fund third country participation, whatever happens with their own association talks. And it would be fantastic if the UK could do something similar. The second thing government could do would be to give a significant boost to the UK's existing fellowship schemes to help mitigate the loss of access to the ERC and MSCA. 
And that's not a perfect solution, but if these fellowships could be opened up to international researchers, it would go some way to plugging the gap before association. Now, in the second scenario, the UK decides not to associate to Horizon Europe. And in that situation, the government would probably need to do three things. So the first two I've already mentioned, um, government would need to put in place third country funding guarantee and provide the uplift in existing fellowships. And the third thing they would need to do is to get the launch of its discovery fund underway, which would deal with our loss of access to the ERC and MSCA. And the good news here is that a lot of work is already going on behind the scenes to develop that discovery fund. And I think there are some exciting features being built into it. For example, grants would be bottom-up investigator-led research across all areas. And we're also seeing talk about offering large and very long-term grants in this area as well. But in either way, in both scenarios, communication with the research community is going to be vital to provide clarity and reassurance as soon as humanly possible. And we're all waiting on those negotiations, of course, and we'll have to see how things go. Turning to look at UKRI, obviously as an organisation, it's uh, two and a half years old. Part of the philosophy of bringing the different elements of UKRI together was to bridge the gap between research and innovation. Do you think it has achieved the desired effect and, and what more might be needed? Well, to give credit to UKRI, as you said, it is only two years old um, and has had to spend the first year or so of its existence bringing nine very different organisations together under one roof. What progress has it made in addressing this apparent gap? Well, it's hard to understand what people mean by a gap between research and innovation, because as we said earlier, you know, that path from discovery to end product or innovation isn't linear. It goes back and forth. And I think for a number of years, we've had this narrative of, oh, the UK is good at research, but not so much at innovation. And I think by and large, review after government review, so that's Dowling Review, Wissy Review, Macmillan Review, the Reese Review, you could go on. They've all found universities are by and large doing an impressive job at pushing their innovations out there in terms of whatever metric you want to use. So I think the challenge, and it's a long-standing one, is that UK business, especially SMEs in the regions, by and large don't invest and engage in R&D. So our understanding of the gap, as it were, is shifting. And we're starting to see that it's about how we stimulate appetite and interest from business, which is why programs like the humble KTP is so important, because they give businesses the chance to see in person what a bit of R&D know-how can do for their bottom line. But we still have a way to go here. It's still the case that around half the business R&D investment in this country is done by firms headquartered overseas. And that's a significantly higher portion, um, proportion than um, most major economies. So there's a cultural change to address here. And I think our universities have been part of that in terms of encouraging businesses to invest in R&D by de-risking that R&D investment. So using a bit of QR funding, a bit of Hive money to co-invest in a project with business that helps to sweeten the deal as it were, and then using the success of that venture to stimulate further collaboration. And again, I think that's why funds like that are so important because if you want to be strategic, you need to have flexibility. And do you think that UKRI has the tools it needs to work with both the business community and the academic community to bring about the kind of cultural change 
that you're talking about? Or does the government need to make any amendments or, or changes the way UKRI set up in order to, to do some of those things? I think that model of constant change probably isn't a good thing. We have just established UKRI. So I don't think we'd want to see wholesale reform sort of put into place at this moment in time. Yes, I think the tools there. An element of it is, is funding things for the long term because we know R&D is a long term project and it's having some faith in programs, you know, such as the CCF, such as Strength in Places, you know, these are fairly new. They got going in something like 2017. They've already been reviewed. We're seeing positive results and value for money in those investments. So you've got to keep plugging and being consistent in that area as opposed to changing up the game partway through. Fair enough. One thing that has been around for quite some time is the REF, of course. And um, we heard last month that uh, the Science Minister, Amanda Soloway, launching a major review of the REF to take place after the, the current exercise has uh, been completed. What do you think that means? Is the REF still a, a good way of measuring research excellence and obviously from that allocating QR funding? Oh, it, it's a tricky question. We do know that there's always a review process at the end of every REF exercise. And that's a good thing um, because you do need to step back at the end of each one and examine the accountability frameworks that we have in place for allocating funding. You know, are they too bureaucratic? Do they incentivize the right behaviors? Are they getting us the results we're looking for? And REF has been seen by some as a driving force in boosting the UK's research quality. But at the same time, we also know that there are concerns that it could be creating negative incentives around research culture because it's such a high stakes process. I think all we can say at this stage is that it's welcome for us to do this um, assessment now. One of the issues we've had in the past is that these reviews have come too late in the process. So it's good that we get a head start on this review. So we've got plenty of time for the next exercise. And, you know, that time should give us the space to be able to ask those big questions that you've just asked. Is the REF a good way of measuring research excellence? What is research excellence? And what's research excellence in the context of positive research cultures? Yeah, all those are questions I couldn't grapple with alone. Uh, so I look forward to all of us coming together as a research community over the next few months uh, and debating them amongst ourselves. We've got quite a long way through the interview without mentioning coronavirus, which is something of a miracle. Obviously, we can just look at the, at, the, at the media to see the effect of teaching in Russell Group and other universities from the coronavirus. But what's been the effect of the pandemic on research in your universities? So research as much as possible has continued. Um, the impact has of course been very different across different research disciplines. I think what we've all been impressed about is how quickly universities have pivoted support work on COVID. So whether that's been on vaccine trials or developing outbreak simulation models or monitoring mental health impact of COVID. I think the thing to point out here is that this pivot and that rapid response has only been possible because of things like QR funding. So although UKRI and Innovate in particular were quick out the gates in terms of raising new funding calls, I think the first funding calls came out at the end of March and by then, King's had already finished the design of its new ventilator system with Dyson. And I think Queen Mary had already helped to build a whole new hospital. So, um, and if you take something like the vaccine work that everyone's been talking about at Oxford, 
which is probably still our best chance of getting a vaccine out before Easter. That work was built on about 10 years of QR investment in establishing the Jenner Institute. And that investment was done because Oxford decided that pandemics were likely to be the next great threat to humans around the world. So that's what QR does. It buys you funding um, and the space to make long-term strategic investments. And it also gives you the flexibility to deploy funding at the drop of a hat when you need to. And that's not something the project funding model can respond to very easily. So the fact that we've seen QR fall by 13% since 2010 is a real blow to our strategic capabilities in this area. Well, that's a, a very strong uh, endorsement of the dual support system and the use of QR. Uh, and I can see the Ross Group might deploy that uh, over the coming months as conversations go on. Obviously, we, we have a new chief executive for UKRI. We said it's an organisation that's only two years old. So maybe just to finish off, what do you think that um, Ocline Laser's priority should be for UKRI over the next sort of two or three years? That almost sounds like um, an interview question for Ocelene. <laughs> um, I'm not offering you the job, by the way. <laughs> I think there's something like 150 actions for UKRI in the government's R&D roadmap. So once we have the outcome of the SR, and UKRI knows what funding it has to work with, then I'd say it probably needs to look at those 150 actions and ruthlessly prioritize because it won't be able to do them all and certainly not all at once or the system just won't be able to cope. We already know that UKRI is looking at how to cut red tape within the organization and within its grant processes, that's welcome. Um, and I think as Oslain Lasers already said, UKRI should use its convening power here to take a holistic view of what creates bureaucracy across the system. So where are we creating multiple reports for multiple funders on the same issue? How can UKRI collaborate with the other funders so that we can address this? Because they're all autonomous, they aren't obliged to listen to UKRI, so what can UKRI do in that area? Mm. I think whatever priority list the organization ends up with, its other priority, as it were, should be to get the sequencing of those reforms right. So we know that Bayes has a red tape review coming up. How will UKRI's view and Bayes's sort of work complement each other? Will they complement each other? We've also got UKRI's people and culture strategy, which is ready to go, which will likely have recommendations around those same grant processes that they're about to do their bureaucracy review on. So have they lined these up? so that the people, strategy, um, the people strategy doesn't introduce a host of changes to these, and then the bureaucracy review comes in and up and makes a whole load more. And then the last thing I'd add is that with COVID, auger, pensions, everything else the sector is having to deal with, plus REF, as you mentioned earlier, UKRI needs to put in place a timeline that's sympathetic to all of that so that we don't overwhelm the universities, which might already be struggling to cope. Yes, no, that's a, a good point. And several of those things on the education side, uh, obviously, we haven't had a chance to discuss, but universities are juggling all of those different things. We could talk about this all day, but we have run out of time. So, uh, Stephanie Smith, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Stephanie Smith, Head of Policy for Research and International at the Russell Group. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at www.foundation.org.uk 
where you can also find recordings of all our events, including the latest event from the 2nd of November this year on future priorities for UKRI. Next week, we'll be discussing online teaching and learning in higher education. And my guest will be Professor Tansy Jessup, Pro Vice-Chancellor for Education at the University of Bristol.